Okay, welcome everybody. Welcome to Collective Intellectualities. Um, we are produced in conjunction with the Philosophical uh, Philosophy of Education Society of Australasia and their online venture, Pisa Agora. Um, please subscribe to our channel, that helps us, and also check out the links below. Um, I'm here today with my co-host, Amy Soho, and we welcome Wayne Ao to the program and we're excited to talk to him today. And Wayne is an educator, activist, and scholar who focuses on issues of race, class, and power in schooling. He is a professor in the School of Educational Studies at the University of Washington, Bothell, where he currently serves as Dean of Diversity and Equity. Wayne is an editor of the social justice teacher magazine, Rethinking Schools, and the author or editor of numerous other publications, including Teaching for Black Lives, Rethinking Ethnic Studies, and A Marxist Education, Learning to Change the World. Uh, so welcome, Wayne. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's nice to get a chance to, to talk with you both. Perfect. So Wayne, uh, with all the work you've done with um, you know, your scholarship and your activism, what we wanted to start off with is, can you tell us a bit about your background and how you became an educational scholar and activist? Yeah, you know, um, me being an educator, is, it's actually, it's been in my mind since I was probably 14 years old, right? Like I have a very vivid memory of um, being in uh, my ninth grade uh, history class at Garfield High School in Seattle, Washington, and, and um, um, really, really disliking what was being taught in that class, the social studies class. Um, and dealing with some some racism from my my teacher at the time, <clears throat> and then um, and and so turn, you know a classmate of mine um, you know we, at that point I turned to each other and sort of said you know we're going to come back to Garfield and, and as teachers and, and do this better um, and so I've had it in my mind for a very long time to be to be a teacher and educator um, and part of that also was I think always having you know I wouldn't have named it as, as such at the time but but I. I definitely knew in my mind I would like I knew I couldn't have a job sitting in a cubicle somewhere doing you know some sort of whatever inane um, uh, task and you know the way I make sense of it now is I think I was trying at the time trying to um, uh, you know put a finger on that I you know I knew I knew that certain kinds of labor were particularly alienating particularly within capitalism and I wanted to find something that was less alienating that was connected to people um, and so education uh, was definitely sort of uh, in the forefront of my mind um, uh, that way. And then I also always saw, you know, I was raised with a, I was raised in a political family. Um, you know, my dad, my, I'm essentially a red diaper baby. My my Chinese father um, uh, was 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 a communist for most for much of my life, and was always involved in activism and organizing. And so, <clears throat> even though my parents were divorced, I still had his, you know. He influenced me in, in a lot of ways around activism and attending um, protests and and um, and sort of and sort of you know helped me help me sort of understand the world in some key ways. And so then growing up, I also always saw then you know education really is a form of activism. I still hold on to that now because I sort of think that fundamentally, or at least in terms of organizing, because I still think that fundamentally, you know, when you're working with communities and you're organizing around issues, you know, what are you doing? You're actually you're trying to you know give people access to resources so they can be educated on the issue and, you know, sharpen their understanding of it 
and, and help them think through ways that they can move to take action. And really that's a, that's just a basic learning process. And I think as teachers, we're doing that in classrooms too. So I always saw, you know, work in classrooms sort of from, from an organizing um, perspective as well. And then, and then to me, just moving forward, you know, all that sort of shaped why I became a teacher, right? So I, you know, to me, it was always political and it was always dealing with, um, you know, the politics of the world and, and helping my students. And it's, again, this is before I had names for it, before, you know, before I had Red Frary or before I had, you know, like it was, I was, I was interested in students developing critical consciousness and understanding all the stuff that was really impacting them in their lives. And so when I became a teacher, um, that was what I brought into my curriculum. Um, you know, we were teaching a people's history of the United States as a high school teacher, right? Before, before Zen Education Project even existed in the world, you know? Um, and, you know, I was, I was you know, in, in my first teaching, high school teaching gig, I was, you know, we had the, uh, that was around 1999 when the World Trade Organization met in Seattle and that first massive global protest sort of erupted. That was like the beginning of the next wave of protests, right? And so I was teaching, like, you know, we were teaching towards that with our students. We did a whole unit on globalization and all this stuff, right? So teaching has always been, been that to me and, and the activism has always been part of that. And so sort of along the way, um, help, I helped, you know, co-found a, a group here in the Puget Sound area at that time. And that was sort of a Puget Sound Rethinking Schools group because we were all folks uh, united to the project that is Rethinking Schools around sort of social justice teaching. Um, and then I got involved rethinking schools myself as, as an author. Um, and so like, you can just sort of see like all along the way, there's this sort of, this sort of, you know, this connection or this nexus of teaching and activism. We're always one and the same to me. And it continued when I went to, to Berkeley to teach high school there. I taught ethnic studies and we organized a huge education, not incarceration thing, like a statewide action. And, um, um, and then after being laid off, cause it's California budget cuts and things like that a few times, I decided to go get my PhD and, and sort of figure out how to take this whole thing that I saw and how do I put it into a, a PhD and a, and, a, and, a, and a doctoral degree. Yeah, so actually too, hearing you say that, um, one of the things that comes up is how this idea of critical consciousness that regularly appears in your work and seeing you talk about that uh, education and teaching and activism and how they're all, you know, they're all one and the same. So one of the things that you have written is that I understand consciousness as thinking about thinking, a process that develops from learning with and within the world. And coming off from that, what philosophers and theorists do you draw on in your understanding of critical consciousness? And then why does this concept inform the work that you do as an educational scholar, um, educator, and also an activist? Yeah, I think with regard to that thinking about consciousness, right? And honestly, there's, you know, there's some tension because people are always talking about sort of critical consciousness too. And I use that term as well, um, or consciousness, right? And I think, I think um, you know, critical consciousness sort of works better ter terminology-wise just because, you know, you, if, you, if, you just, if you purely use consciousness, then the, then the alternative is unconsciousness. Like no one's really asleep. Everybody's sense-making, right? And so that's why I tend to lean towards using critical consciousness. But really, uh, I say that just because, you know, the earlier philosophers did use consciousness. They weren't the term consciousness. They weren't using the term for consciousness. Um, but really, when, for that, it really, to me, comes down to uh, is, is doing, you know, Lev Vygotsky is sort of the key person I draw on philosophically for thinking about, um, uh, about consciousness. Because 
you know, Vygotsky, I mean, that's really the basis of what Vygotsky, everything Vygotsky was sort of laying out was how do we learn, uh, even, and, you know, how, how do we, how do we, um, you know, that, how do we move to, uh, in his terms, from a spontaneous consciousness about something like our everyday experience, everyday consciousness, how we engage with the world and sort of make common sense about it. And how, then how do we move in his terms to a more scientific consciousness, right? Which is what I would call critical consciousness. So uh, thinking about the thinking, uh, a more meta understanding of what's going on. Um, and then, you know, what I think folks, folks love, you know, this is part of the thing, what, uh, just as a little aside, when I, you know, when I hit the, my doctoral program and I, and I hit the academy and sort of understanding like this whole new discourse community around, uh, you know, critical theory and, and educational theory and philosophy, um, you know, at, at, at that time, everybody was using zone, you know, zone of proximal development. ZPD was everywhere in mainstream circles, like mainstream, you know, professional development for teachers. They were teaching about ZPD. And so then I'm reading Vygotsky and learning about ZPD. And I'm like, I was just like, I was like, wait a minute. Like ZPD is actually related directly to like this whole idea of moving from spontaneous consciousness to scientific consciousness or critical consciousness. And that was getting left out of the whole conversation um, uh, because it just became sort of faddish to use this whole Vygotskyan thing. Um, and then really underlying Vygotsky, and I've written about this in a couple of places, is that, you know, fundamentally there's a, a Marxist dialectical materialist, a really Leninist philosophy that's underlying Vygotsky's whole framing of learning. Um, because what Vygotsky did really maps really well onto Lenin's discussions about, um, uh, you know, uh, what he would call spontaneous uh, worker uprisings in the factories, and then how that compares to more uh, scientific or revolutionary consciousness amongst the, amongst the proletariat, amongst the working class, um, where they're doing more than just rebelling against their immediate conditions, but also seeking to change society and the relations of, of production, essentially, right? Um, and so you can see that directly in Vygotsky in terms of the language and the structure. Um, and I would argue that Vygotsky was trying to articulate, um, also articulate, um, you know, uh, critical consciousness amongst the masses as well as, as part of his project. But again, all that stuff, that whole stuff around Marxism and dialectical materialism and, and Leninism was also just left out of everyone's conversation about Vygotsky when it made it, made it to the mainstream. And even when it made it to the academy, lots of people had started throwing around Zorner Proximal Development and Vygotsky in the academy at the time. Um, with no clue and even resistance to uh, thinking about Vygotsky as sort of a philosophical Marxist as well. Um, I kind of want to ask you a, a, a kind of nerdy theory follow-up question to that because I'm not I'm not as familiar with uh, Vygotsky and I, I've, I've been aware of some of your work sort of sussing out the continuities and discontinuities between Lenin and Vygotsky. But where do concepts like reification come in? Um, reification or like commodity fetishism or alienation, those sort of core um, Marxist concepts that, that you know, are developed further with like the Frankfurt School and so on. Um, are those sort of imminent to some of that, to some of those conceptualizations or are they sort of external? I, I actually, I feel like they're external to at least in terms of like Vygotsky's conceptualization. I don't I, like, um, I, you don't see him, for instance, talking very much about alienation, uh, per se, and certainly not commodity fetishism. And so even though I've, I've, I've definitely used that stuff in my work, um, but less, less so in this, this uh, particular area. I've, I've used it more, use, for me, you know, um, I've used those particularly Marxist concepts more relative to, say, um, you know, high-stakes testing and, and sort of understanding um, sort of the, the capitalistic uh, structuring of education, particularly in the United States, right? 
Um, and, I've, and I also use it to think through, you know, our, our relation to education and, and you know, how, like alienation, for instance, how we think about alienation, you know, once we, once we commodify education in particular ways, I, I think that automatically, you know, creates a certain kind of alienation from the process of learning. Um, and so, so I definitely use that stuff, but um, in terms of thinking through, through consciousness in this particular way, um, it's, it seems that, you know, particularly with Vygotsky, that stuff's kind of external. Um, to it. Same, same thing with other folks like Ferrari, which I think actually parallels Vygotsky very, very closely, um, but you don't see quite as much around the stuff around alienation, uh, for instance, uh, coming, coming in connection with that. That's interesting. Um, yeah, and the, we, we want to follow up on this too, because uh, your two most recent books, one is, one is um, a volume on race and ethnic studies, and then you've also written a book, a book on Marx and, and education. And some might see tensions between the Marxist tradition and sort of contemporary analysis of race and racism. Mm -hmm. And so we're wondering a bit how you um, modify or expand, like, well, we're wondering how you navigate those tensions and then also how you kind of, what, what, what do you draw on to sort of modify and expand the Marxist tradition? And also like, why is that tradition important um, in, in your analysis, um, in your expanded analysis of it? Yeah, okay, so, so there's, yeah, there's a, lot, there's a lot to get out there. I, like, let me think, the best way to go at it. I, I don't think they're necessarily contradictory, although I understand the contradictions that arise as people think about uh, how, how race is analyzed and then how does Marxism sort of relate to that. Um, but that's because there are, I think, there's a pretty wide and varying like conceptualization around how do we understand race and racism and, and sort of attack it, right? Um, everything from, you know, liberal notions, um, you know, to, you know, um, you know, CRT and, and I think, I think where I've, where I've, some of the best work I've seen um, might be sort of like the work of like, you know, Robin D.G. Kelly and his discussion of racial capitalism. And so you're seeing some of these, you know, for lack of a better terms sort of a marriage of trying to bring in these race analyses with uh, more Marxist and socialist analyses of capitalism and, 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 and getting, you know, bringing them together. But for me, um, and I do some, of, I do some of this work in a Marxist education um, is I actually try and argue that there's a few things. One is that there's sort of this broad-based critique that, you know, Marx was, he was an old, he's an old dead white guy from Germany with nothing to say about race or it's inherently racist because of who he was and where he came from. And so I try and push back on that for a few reasons. One is just that I think it makes sense for, you know, um, uh, a critique of capitalism to come from essentially the birthplace, the heart, the birthplace of the beast, right? You know, coming, coming out of Western Europe around that time. Um, I think it makes sense for that. Um, the other piece I always argue around is sort of like, look, you know, actually Marx was paying attention to to race in various areas and thinking about, you know, um, uh, you know, chattel slavery in the in the United States and how how that impacted industrial development. Um, and he was also beginning to be thinking about other uh, uh, spaces around the world in terms of different forms of capitalism and different kinds of relations and and different ways that that um, movements might evolve, you know, relative to to say, you know, um, he had talked a little bit about an Asian form of capitalism and some other things. Like his eyes were were elsewhere and looking and thinking about some of that stuff. Um, and then, and then uh, other, another way I push back around some of that this foundational discussion is to sort of look at you know the philosophy of dialectical materialism and actually argue that even though this is what got articulated by Marx, and I think it was you know in a very sort of dialectical way we got to say that that his articulation 
you know, um, got settled and became canonized or sort of came into existence through, you know, as much, you know, a series of historical circumstances as anything else, um, you know, with the rise of imperialism and the movement of, of English around the world and, and the growth of capitalism at that time, then, then Marx's voice gets to be this thing around articulating this particular philosophy. But the irony is that, you know, even though Marx, uh, you know, was, was, a, was a Western European white guy, um, uh, you know, dialectical materialism and the philosophy he was articulating, you know, through his analysis is act, was actually in con direct contradiction to uh, a lot of the major philosophical stands of the time coming out of Western Europe. Like it's, it's anti-positivism and anti-empiricism, right? It's like, it's actually, um, uh, uh, you know, much more aligned with, you know, Eastern philosophies uh, around contradiction and motion and process, right? And, or, and so part of what I do in the book is kind of pull on some of that and say, look, there's a bunch of Chinese traditions that also are very much dialectical in how they frame things. And there's, um, there's Aztec traditions that also see the world in these particular ways. And then even, I think there's some arguments we made that, that uh, you know, so everyone goes back to Hegel, but then if you go and look at some of the research around uh, just, just how much of Greek philosophy actually came from uh, ancient Egypt, right, and what would be considered a canon of sort of African philosophy as well, that actually might be living inside of, of what Hegel, you know, um, uh, pulled from Greek philosophy, right? And so I think there's some arguments around sort of um, uh, that, that Marxism itself is in many ways less Eurocentric uh, and, and in many times non-Eurocentric um, than folks actually have, have portrayed it to be. And so, so, at, so on a very fundamental level, level I'm, I'm trying, I try to work through um, some of that stuff. And then I also pull on some more recent things, um, like for instance, uh, Coltart's work. And Coltart is a, um, a Native American uh, scholar um, who, who basically argues, he sort of helps re-understand primitive accumulation. Right, it, you know, typically when folks use Marxism to be to to think about primitive accumulation, there's that word primitive in there for one, um, uh, and and all the implications of that in terms of like you know uh, you know racism and stages and advancement things like that. But folks tend to put that raw accumulation of materials as being something that happened in the past, like it's way over here and we're here in the now, and that's what happened then. Coltart, you know, uh, basically thinking through settler colonialism. Uh, as a process, not just as a, a thing that happened, but as something that's ongoing, actually argues that primitive accumulation is an ongoing process that's maintained through the settler colonial state, right? So it's a really interesting way of sort of taking into account, you know, colonization and thinking about, you know, racialization of Native Americans and, and sort of the, the, the state of Native America and the state of modern capitalism, but then seeing, um, uh, but, but still using all that to make, to make sense in a Marxist sense, Around around resource um, uh, uh, you know resource extraction and the maintenance of capitalism now, um, and then another scholar that I'm drawn on lately to think about a lot of this stuff, um, and I haven't written about this. This is um, but I'm going to is uh, Iko Day, um, uh, who's really a cultural theorist. But Iko has a great book called Alien Capital, and uh, she's a uh, she's a uh, Asian Canadian um, scholar. And uh, you know she she does an amazing job around sort of think rethinking or you know um, you know how do we understand for instance Asian Americans relative to Native folks and Black folks uh, you know in the Americas um, and 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 sort of colonialism um, and you know she has an, she has a really interesting argument that actually um, that posits that actually we need to understand 
both Asian labor and black labor as, uh, as, as alien labor, right? Um, now, granted, she doesn't equate them. They're very, she understands, like, you know, channel slavery versus, you know, uh, immigration are very different extremes. Um, but she makes a really compelling argument that, you know, black labor gets um, what is really associated with, with concrete labor, right? Versus Asian labor gets really associated with abstract labor. Right, and so she's using she's using a very elaborate discussion around how do we understand in Marxist terms how do we understand, and that that in turn um, influences then how do we make sense of of race relations within the U.S. within this framework, and so um, yeah, so there you know so I so I you know in in big picture sense that's how I'm looking at things, and then with really I think for me I just I, I just maintain my my position like I don't I definitely have a left critique of identity politics which is different than the right critique. I want to be clear about that. Um, and, uh, but, I, but I'm still, I'm always thinking about race, uh, you know, racism relative these days, particularly in terms of, of white supremacy instead of colonialism. Um, and also sort of always keeping my eye on the ball in terms of uh, the role of capitalism in all of this. Right. And that's probably what's going to distinguish me from other folks who might be from some other folks uh, who are, who are, um, you know, uh, thinking through uh, race politics sort of uh, in this moment. So. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. Now I have to read that. You said um, Iko Day. Yeah, yeah, Iko Day. It's I Y K O is is her first name, and uh, the book's called Alien Capital, and it's really fantastic. And I, what I want to do is I want to use that put a link in the show notes. Yeah, we'll put a link. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> shout out to Iko Day. But what I want, but what I want to do is really link that. And the other thing I think that's happened, you know, I've been thinking a lot, obviously, about the anti-Asian racism and everything going on. Um, and so, you know, for me, I think in all these discussions, what I've been, what I've been a little frustrated with is, is I feel like folks still only see anti-Asian racism. They see it as purely as um, a vehicle, uh, you know, to support anti-Black racism or anti, or anti-Indigenous, when really anti-Indigenous racism, when really um, it does get used that way, right? Obviously things like the model minority myth do get used against other folks of color, but it's, that, that framing tends to actually neglect that there's a whole European Orientalist anti-Asian racism that lives on its own, right? That's had its own history and trajectory. Um, and we lose that, um, uh, and we lose that ability to understand anti-Asian racism in its own right as its own process when we just make it a product of anti-Black racism, for instance. And so, um, so I wanna, I'm gonna, Eichel stuff is great for that. So I'm gonna try and, um, work through some of that conversation a little bit in, in an upcoming paper once I get to it. <laughs> well, you know, I want to read that paper already, so I can't wait till you get to it. So kind of shifting tracks a little bit, but I think as we were talking to pointing out um, with the anti-Asian racism, but also when you, you said to like the model minority. And so I think this kind of gets into what we're going into, say like multiculturalism. But first we want to revisit your dissertation. Um, which was on high stakes standardized testing, which is of course like a vehicle, capitalism, racism, all of these things. Um, and that became the basis for your first book, Unequal by Design. So thinking too about your theoretical roots and your philosophical frameworks and how this informs your activism, but why is it important to understand the historical roots of testing? And how does this history inform the sociological impacts and contemporary politics of schooling and especially educational inequality? So, and we're also 
especially curious about how testing intersects with the evolving class and say the racial structure of US society, especially you think within the post pandemic movement where you have, I think, I believe it was uh, U, the UC schools are no longer right, requiring the SAT. Yeah, so UC, it's, it's, it's shifting, yeah. It's shifting, yeah. No, the major victories recently, UCs uh, ditched the SAT and the ACT and actually same with University of Washington, that was much less publicized, but um, that happened. I didn't even know it happened until three or four days after it happened here in Washington, which is um, mind blowing to me. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, so if you think back to what I said earlier about how I say education and critical consciousness, then really I'd say that sort of shapes all of my scholarship, right? Including, including my work on high stakes standardized testing. Um, because, you know, what I, what I really want, what, what that project did for me was it helped increase my consciousness, but, you know, in publishing that work and in speaking about it, and I still end up doing a lot of work around that, um, um, is it like the goal of that is to get like, to get folks to develop really you know, a meta historical, conceptual, theoretical, political understanding of the tests, right? Just from the beginning, that's, that's what it's about. Um, <clears throat> because, you know, much like a lot of things, a lot of other things in education, you know, people just take testing for granted. It's part of a common sense way of measuring education. And, and people, you know, gen generally folks like, just operate on the assumption that the test scores are meaningful in particular ways. Um, you know, they just assume, right? Oh, you get good test scores, then you're smart. It means it's a good school. It means it's a good teacher. Uh, it means it's a good neighborhood. It's a good place to buy a house. There's all these meanings we attach, attach to those test scores, and people just don't think about it. And so that whole project to me was just to kind of to, to, to really try and, you know, peel, peel back the veil around testing so folks could understand it in all these different ways. Um, and so I think it's important within that vein, I think it's important then historically for folks to really understand that you know, what, like, the, that the paradigm these tests are built on is one purely of inequality, right? Like, they're built to create inequality. Um, that's why I named the book Unequal by Design. It's, it's, it's a, you know, it's a model of the world that assumes, number one, that intelligence exists on a bell curve, and that's built into us biologically, right? There's, there's an actual biological concept of IQ that folks who build tests work off of, because any good test, any good measurement for them is, you know, is only accurate if it produces an unequal bell curve of who does well and who does, who does poorly and who's in the middle, right? Um, and so then if that's at the heart of it, I need to put that in the context of capitalism and this whole idea of education around in class reproduction, um, and then you, then you overlap race, you know, on top of that as well, right? So, so you get to see how actually, you know, these tests end up being this vehicle for, you know, literally reproducing class relations and white supremacy in this country, right? And doing so in very concrete ways. Um, and, and so historically then I think it's helpful for folks, they don't even know, like when you go back to these early psychologists, you know, Terman and Yerkes and, you know, all these folks, um, you know, uh, they're like, like they had totally racist and sexist and classist notions and they, they thought their objective tests, they thought their tests were objective, and that they, these tests showed objectively, right, um, uh, that, that, you know, poor people were, were, were dumber than rich people and that immigrants were dumber than those born in the U.S. and that brown people were dumber than white people. Like, they thought they had, you know, they had the end. They found the magic key, you know, to explain all this stuff. Um, and it also was very much tied to the eugenics movement in the United States at the time, right? And also was the founding, founding of tracking. You know, we still have 
international baccalaureate programs and AP programs and, and you know, um, uh, gifted programs and highly capable programs now. And that goes back 100 years to these same tests and really the idea that a lot of people thought, oh, not all these kids are smart enough and good enough to, to go to college. They need to be put into lower tracks and trained to go work in the workforce, right? And so um, that's why I think it's important for folks to understand this history so they can make sense of what's happening now. Because, you know, when you get down to it, if you look at the results of all of our high-stakes standardized tests now, it's basically a mirror of 100 years ago, right? You still got, poor, for the most part, poor kids doing worse than rich kids, kids of color, particularly black and brown kids doing worse uh, than white kids and affluent kids, right? Uh, ELL students, uh, you know, not doing as well as, as, as native English, English speakers. It's, it's all there. And so, um, you know, and I think one, just as, a, as sort of an aside, in, terms, in Marxist terms, I'm actually trying to think through something right now. It's another paper I want to do um, because, you know, we still don't have an explanation of what the tests actually measure, right? We know they don't measure learning, right? And, and we know that because, you know, even if you take the test scores sort of as, as a real measure of something, you know, statistically, right, like, like basically, depending on the study you look at, you know, around maybe up to 75 or 80% of any test score is statistically based on non-school factors, right? So you might have 25 to 20% happening over here in the school. And then within that, the teacher, again, for whatever the test score actually means, the statisticians look at that and they do their, you know, they do their, they do, they have, they have their value added formulas and stuff, which are a whole other, whole other podcast worth of discussion. Um, you know, they, they end up finding that, oh, you know, even the most influential teacher might be, might contribute to like 15% of any test score, right? And so then you have to ask this question, like, what are we measuring, right? Um, if it's, if it's not what's happening in a school, which means it's not really about teaching and learning. And we don't really have a good answer to that. And so I actually think that, that Marxism has some, um, uh, answers to that um, in the sense that if, if you um, if you look at um, uh, like I'm starting to think that that maybe uh, the test scores actually are, are measuring um, uh, you know the resources that it takes to put into class reproduction right um, and that's that's become a reflection of that and so the students that are coming from working-class families and maybe the parents haven't gone to university right it's just it's just measuring the amount of social labor that's gone into reproducing them, and that's the score you get out of that. Versus the kids who come from the super affluent families, that that is measuring everything that's got got into them, and they're getting they have these higher scores. So um, that's another argument I'm thinking about that that I want to take up and sort of really explore um, as as part of this. Um, yeah, what's the second half of the question though? You had you had a bunch in there, so. Well, that I mean, there the, there is quite a bit of data there to to back up the the underlying theoretical foundations of the argument. Um, the cost to social re socially reproduce like a professional managerial class uh, position in the society has gone way up. Yeah, and uh, you know what we see actually from like 1980 to the present is like middle middle class kids and like rich kids. They used to do about the same, like on these tests, their, their scores were like kind of equivalent. But what we've seen over the last four decades is wealthier for folks just like pouring unprecedented economic and social resources into their kids as the economy becomes, you know, as it hemorrhages middle class jobs, as precarity saturates, you know, the entire sort of labor market. There's more and more competitive pressures and therefore more and more and more investment that those wealthy families are doing 
to protect their, you know, their socioeconomic position, their class position. So, I mean, it's the, this, this particular kind of work that you do is so valuable because, um, this needs to be better understood. It's like, as you were saying in the beginning, you know, we just sort of, it's just such a normalized process. However, maybe like at this moment too, though, I mean, I think that the discourse around meritocracy runs into a whole, whole kind of objective reality around the distribution of wealth and the power and power in the society. And maybe it's like fracturing and falling apart a little bit more than, then it, it doesn't quite hold up as well as it might have ideologically a decade or two ago. Um, so yeah, that's very interesting. Um, we want to change gears just a little bit and, and sort of uh, move from sort of the struct more of the structural analysis, although we can't really leave it behind, but think a little bit more about the cultural politics of some of the work that you're doing. And when Amy and I, you know, got together and sort of were discussing your work, I mean, I think what, one of the things that we we're really drawn to and, and wanting to hear from you about is, are sort of tensions in the present historical moment around multiculturalism and social justice education. So on one hand, we have full-blown reactionary politics in the U.S., um, which manifests in sort of attacks on critical race theory, uh, fretting about cancel culture, sort of endless culture war hand-wringing about wokeness. And on the other hand, and you sort of gestured toward this a little bit, that you have a left critique of identity politics, and perhaps there's, there's something here in that, but um, we have liberal elites, the Democratic Party and corporations, they've adopted the symbolism and language of multiculturalism and social justice, and often in ways that weaponize identity politics. Um, and they it's identity politics are weaponized specifically in ways that obscure concentrated wealth and power in forms of economic exploitation in dispossession of working class communities, immigrant communities and communities of color. So we wanted to ask you, how are these sort of emergent dynamics um, impacting your thinking um, and also your approach to multicultural and social justice education um, in this moment? Yeah, and you know, obviously everything sort of evolved because context-wise, I think that the sort of racial reckoning from last spring and summer sort of moved the, the space we have in our common sense conversations, right? Like we went from, you know, five years ago, if you were talking publicly about white supremacy, you'd be looked at as if you were, you know, off the, off the ledge. You were way out, way, way out in the field. And then after last year, you know, you see like, oh, you can bring up white supremacy in, in sort of more mainstream circles and not be sort of laughed out of the room, right? And so things have definitely shifted around that. Um, you know, one, and I'm glad you brought the Democratic Party stuff, because I think that actually illustrates a lot. You know, um, one, of the, one of the concepts I've, I've been drawn to and I really, really like is uh, Jody Melamed's um, framing of neoliberal multiculturalism. And so she basically argues that um, you know, we've gotten to this point where, you know, neoliberalism can essentially co-opt multiculturalism and multicultural identities and use that as part of advancing the neoliberal project, right? And we see that all over the place. And we've been seeing it for a long time. I think she's put a name to it in a particular moment. Um, you know, and, and um, so like, as I've written about in a couple places, you know, you can see, for instance, how education reform always gets framed as a civil rights project. 
right? It's like we're going to have more testing because the achievement gap is 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 this country's civil is you know the next civil rights issue, right? And uh, the racial achievement gap is, is this is our civil rights moment, right? And you know every single president uh, has said that you know from from basically Bush on through you know uh, Trump. I, I could probably look at Biden; he's probably said it already at some point. Um, and so you get to see how something like like testing, high stakes standards testing, which is clearly part of the neoliberal educational sort of corporate reform project, um, uh, how 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 a particular kind of identity politics and a particular kind of multiculturalism gets used to weaponize that particular that particular tool within education reform, and it becomes you just see it happening um, um, all over the place. And part of it has to do with sort of the kind of the way politics works and sort of consensus building and how do you build a mainstream consensus around something. And one of the best ways to do it right now is to particularly pick up a kind of very liberal notion of, of race and racial justice. Um, um, and, that, and that to me is, 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 is like, you know, a big piece um, of, of what I see happening. But there's, there, I mean, there's, but there's all kinds of tensions, right? And, you know, um, it, it's like, I think it's very interesting that right now, just to think about a couple, couple examples, um, we have two things going on simultaneously. Um, and so Alex, like you raised, you know, legis state legislation that's not only against CRT, but that actually gets anti-racist and diversity training, not only at the university level, but also curriculum at K-12 level, right? So it was like Texas just passed its law banning basically like the teaching of racism, um, which is so ironic given that it's Texas, right? And I think Oklahoma also passed a similar law. And these laws are naming not just critical race theory, but they're naming like, like um, I think it was the Oklahoma law, literally named like Zen Education Project, Black Lives Matter at School. Like it's naming specific projects uh, that are aimed at doing anti-racist education and saying these aren't allowed in our curriculum because it's divisive, right? And it's, it's un-American and all that kind of stuff. So here we have this thing living over here. At the same exact time, we have other states that are, um, you know, passing, you know, uh, various forms or supporting ethnic studies in K-12 schools, right? Um, um, and districts who are supporting, you know, Black Lives Matter in schools and teaching for Black Lives and, and those kinds of projects. Um, and, and it's so contradictory because we know that, you know, ethnic studies takes, you know, essentially, if it's done right, should be taking, you know, it, it's an anti-colonial stance and analyzes capitalism and white supremacy and, you know, as part of a project of, of looking at racism and how, you know, um, how it's, treated communities, you know, in this country throughout its history, right? So, and so we're in a particularly sharp contradictory moment when you see that happening all, all over the place. Um, and then there's even, I think there's even contradictions within the, the, um, the movement around ethnic studies, to be clear, like the struggle in California, where um, you had actually a pretty, pretty strong ethnic studies framework that was, that came out of the original, you know, uh, building of it because there's a lot of people who are directly involved in actually ethnic studies organizing in K-12 in the production of that, but then it was too radical, right? And so then it went up going through a couple different revisions and some of the conservative uh, Jewish groups like were upset that Palestine and Palestinians were included on and stuff around decolonization. Um, and so like, so then it further got watered down. And so, you know, on the one hand we get this victory, oh, California finally passes its ethnic studies framework, but it's been after two or three rounds of revision after attacks from conservative groups and what came out in the end is not what actual ethics people doing ethnic studies uh, at the K-12 level, the activists who've organized for it, it's not what they want because 
it doesn't actually match what it, what they think ethnic studies is, right? Or what really ethnic studies is, not just what they think. Um, so then even where we have these victories, it's also sort of these setbacks because we're still battling with the, some of the contradictory politics um, around um, around multicultural education and 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 sort of uh, you know what what does it really mean for us in the end? And then even then, thinking about ethnic studies particularly. Um, you know, I think there are some real contradictions because it raises the question, and this is also a question around multicultural education, but it's like, you know, what happens when we win? Like here's ethnic studies, which is like really in its heart, it's a rebellious activist, you know, pedagogy and content and curriculum. Um, and then what happens when it becomes a state standard, right? Like, like you know, you, you, lose, you lose the lo locality, the localness and the power um, and and uh, so you know you get the state standard and that gives people space, but then it becomes like the watered down version, and it becomes much more like regular multicultural multicultural education that doesn't include like a critique of colonization, for instance, you know, or and so and so so the, yeah, lots of contradictions floating around in all this space. And I think for me in my navigation of this, I really try and you know um, I'm all, I, I am always honest and true about what I say, and and I'm always trying to advance you know, a kind of multicultural education that is also anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist um, and, and really holding on to critiques of white supremacy um, and not watering down, you know, um, uh, you know what I'm doing uh, just to get some particular traction with, with, with the mainstream. Um, I feel like it's one of my jobs, you know, as an academic and as an activist to sort of be one of the outposts of radicalism and, and make sure to keep pushing that conversation. I'm, now I'm strategic about that, but um, um, I'm, I'm not out there bashing everybody all the time or anything, um, but I do think it's part of my work to help help keep a edge to it so that folks can um, uh, see where, where the next horizon, where one of the next horizons might possibly be. Yeah, and so in some of your in some of your recent work, and so we're gonna move here into maybe some discussions, dig a little deeper into these tensions. Particularly, particularly around your conceptualization of a, a pedagogy of insurgency or an insurgent pedagogy. Um, and, and you use uh, an example, a kind of crystallizing example at John Muir Elementary School uh, in Washington State where you live. Um, and you use, ex you use this example uh, to highlight forms of violence that are being visited on communities, you know, particularly in this sort of post-Trump I mean, or I don't know, we're still in kind of like Trumpy America. I don't, I don't think we're necessarily post-Trump. I don't think that's quite the right language, but you're using this as a crystallizing example of sort of where we are um, historically, culturally, and the violence that's being visited on communities in this moment. Um, and it kind of, and the idea is, um, you know, it's sort of raising the stakes for the kind of critical educational work that you do. So could you speak a bit about what happened at John Muir Elementary School and how it embodies um, these specific challenges that, that, that you're thinking about and navigating in your work, your activist work, and, and also your scholarly work. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I didn't realize we were going to talk about this, but I'm actually wearing the, the sweatshirt today because uh, it's a little cool today. and I'm not in a nice, warm Hawaii climate. Um, uh, yeah, so, yeah, so what happened at John Muir? So my son used to attend John Muir Elementary um, and that was, you know, it's just a block, two blocks from, from our previous home. Um, and John Muir Elementary 
you know, they've had been, the staff there have been doing, you know, some work around sort of racial justice work for actually a couple of years. Um, um, you know, they, they, you know, had done some work, had like Ruby Bridges, you know, uh, work around Ruby Bridges and, and they've just been, you know, they've been just trying to process what it means for them to think about curriculum and do racial justice work in part because the school itself, you know, was um, sort of on, sort of on a, in a, in a sort of border neighborhood where, um, you know, if you went like two or three blocks north or, or east, you would be like in multi-million dollar homes. But if you went two or three blocks south or, or west, you'd be in Rainier Valley, which is like total, totally working class, uh, uh, black and brown folks and large immigrant communities, et cetera. And so, you know, the population at, at John Muir is, you know, at least at the time, um, was certainly majority black, um, a lot of Muslim students as well. Um, and, uh, you know, may, maybe it was like 15% white kids, maybe. And certainly like somewhere maybe around an area of 60 or 70% free reduced lunch. So very much a, a working class um, uh, black brown school. <clears throat> and so the, the teachers and staff, of course, there's some really amazing folks there who, who work with the community and who are really committed to the kids. And so they've been doing stuff around racial justice and trying to move, you know, the staff forward on, on these issues. Um, so, so within that context, um, and this is also, you know, uh, going back to, um, you know, uh, the, the previous round of sort of Black Lives Matter and the uprising in the summers, it was uh, 2017, right? Um, so it was sort of in that context, um, the, one of the um, African-American staff members wanted to do, um, um, uh, it, was, it was like 100 black men uh, sort of greeting the kids at the door and giving high fives and stuff and sort of trying to change the narrative that was his uh, his name is Deshaun Jackson, really, really great, really great guy. Um, and so you want to change the narrative around sort of blackness and, 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 and folks sort of believing that black people don't care about education. Um, and so he was going to call and have, have, you know, put out a call to get hundreds of black men to come line up and greet the kids. Um, and then, uh, and then as part in solidarity with that, the staff decided to do, um, create these shirts, t-shirts really, with this like this design on it right um black lives matter we stand together john muir elementary and um and so and, and, and they were going to wear them on the same day and have it be an act of solidarity um but they somehow i got it got leaked to the news to the local news um and so local news got hold of the fact that this that these teachers were going to wear these black lives matters t-shirts right um and then it made its way over to black breitbart and blue lives matter you know the, the ultra right wing news news outlets um, or news and quotes outlets, and so so suddenly it became like a thing. And eventually, what happened was uh, somewhere in a chat room, somewhere online, uh, someone made a bomb threat against the school, right? Um, and so that's that set off a whole chain of events. Really amazing, too. Um, of course, you know, immediately after it happened, um, the district, you know, um, officially canceled the event, right? Um, meanwhile, like folks in the union, particularly there's a left-wing caucus in the union, um, uh, uh, Seattle uh, equity educators, and, and they, uh, they, they started building solidarity from within the union for supporting the teachers and the school community at, at John Muir. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, it was, it, it was really beautiful. You know, they, they, they sort of endorsed their support, and then, of course, the district folks started to come around. Um, and then what happened was, um, you know, when the day came around, actually, we secretly did it anyways, like a bunch of black men came out, it wasn't all 100, but we had a couple dozen came out, there's drum circles, um, folks wore their t-shirts, like, we kind of did this event anyways, in the face, sort of as a protest, really. 
And to be clear, as sad as it is, but to be clear, like the police came that, that day and they sent bomb sniffing dogs into the school to make sure there wasn't any bombs in the area. Um, uh, otherwise, obviously, we would have done it. Um, but, uh, but we had the event and became this really rallying point. It's really beautiful. And then, it, and then it also sort of grew because of the original organizing point, the original threat against the school. Um, it, it got the union activists pushing for a district-wide Black Lives Matter at school day, right? And so then that became this big push and people started organizing around that. And then the Seattle uh, Parent Teachers Association um, came and endorsed it. And then eventually, you know, the most amazing thing happened, amazing, good or bad, I don't know. Um, but the district, right, which is trying to put on its hat around serving black, like they're trying to push, we're, we're serving a black community, we're serving our black kids. Because um, there had even been a lawsuit um, against Seattle schools around the, the disproportionate discipline of black children. So uh, the district actually, administration actually, uh, ended up endorsing the Black Lives Matter at school day, right? And so we had sort of a historic moment, I think, when here we are talking about Black Lives Matter at school, and we had the teachers and the teachers union, we had the citywide parent teachers association, uh, and Seattle Public Schools district administration all endorsing this this action. And so um, you know, a bunch of us, a bunch of folks worked on you know planning curriculum and um, you know press conferences, all this stuff, and we did did the whole day, and it went off and. And then it actually, it actually became the inspiration for folks in Philadelphia who in turn um, organized, the national, organized the National Black Lives Matter School Committee. And that became now what we have is a Black Lives Matter School Week um, in several cities across the nation. So it was really beautiful to have this one act of resistance and one, you know, what a relatively small, three, 400 kid size elementary school in South Seattle um, become the impetus for something that grew, grew into basically a national, uh, national movement. Um, and so, yeah, so that's the story of, of, of what happened with Muir and, and, and sort of what it can be. Um, and then, uh, Alex, what was the other part? You wanted the, sto the story and then you had a bunch after that. I want to make sure I didn't lose all of all that in my, in my blabbing about, <laughs> about the story of Muir. Sorry, I was muted. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a great story because I think it outlines in practical terms um, in many ways, what you're talking about when you're talking about a pedagogy of, of insurrection. And you talk, um, you know, you've had a couple of articles about this and you talk about um, multicultural education isn't, isn't enough. And, and you also talk about some of the tensions between sort of liberal individualism and collective action. And I think that, so we'd like to get you to, you know, expand on that a little bit, but, the, but this particular example that you're using, um, it seems like a concrete example of the process that you're outlining, but outlining in more theoretical terms. Yeah, and I think, and I think what, um, you know, thinking about, I sort of framed it as pedagogic insurgency. Um, and, and for me, it's sort of, again, like I said, just a little, a little bit earlier around, you know, where do I sort of stand and go with my version of multicultural education, right? And so, and so <clears throat> you know, there's something much more radical and transformative in, for instance, the growth of this Black Lives Matter at school day and week and the work that happened in John Muir Elementary, um, because it's really calling into question, right, it's, you know, there's some forms of multicultural education that are just, a lot of them are mere, merely about access, right? Um, you know, nothing wrong with a highly, cap highly capable program, we just need more kids to take the test, right? More kids of color to take the test, right? Or we just, we just need more uh, black and brown teachers, which I think we do need, but, you know, that becomes the end goal. We, we just need more black and brown teachers, that's going to fix it. Um, we just need more, get more kids into college. Um, 
Whereas this version of multicultural education really becomes about, okay, it's, it's based in community. It's about community transformation and transformation of education. And it's got a much more, um, much more activist, a much more rebellious streak running through it um, in a way that would actually turn off the mainstream multiculturalists in, in, in most situations uh, as being too radical or too, too, uh, causing too much trouble. Um, and so I think for me, that's, that's sort of what, what I'm always trying to push um, is, is that version of multicultural education, multicultural education. Um, but again, like you just said, though, there's this whole thinking around, you know, really it ends up something that's based around collective action um, because like that's, that's where we're both stronger and safer, frankly. Um, you know, if we're moving purely individu individually, and this is just, this is just act basic activist and organizing 101 in many ways, right? If you're moving purely individually, um, then you're, you're very easily um, uh, either, you know, um, either stomped out or, or neutralized in whatever form, whether it's, um, you know, just having your power taken away from you or whatever. Um, but, you know, the collective work that happened for folks at John Muir, like that, that created a community, it created a safety net for folks. Um, and, and then uh, it also, you know, it also just, it, it also just enabled us to like, um, um, just feel more free together because we're moving together, um, you know, out into the world and out into the district. And so, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, I don't know. It's difficult for me to put a finger on all that just because it was, that, that moment was, was really close to me and I've tried to make sense of it through the writing, but I haven't always felt most successful about it uh, in, the, in the process. Um, yeah, sort of, sort of imminent to some of the things that you've been saying, um, around these tensions and these issues. At one point earlier, you mentioned that you see your role as sort of, you know, not moderating your, like your language. You said you're, you're strategic, um, but that you're playing a role of trying to push the conversation and, and, and push, um, you know, a sense of possibility. And one of the questions we wanted to ask you um, is, and I think we want to ask you this, especially sort of for, for practitioners and teachers and how, and, 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 and those who are committed to social justice, but maybe working in contexts where um, they're, they're working in more difficult cultural and political contexts where there aren't people who identify with that kind of language or that kind of politics. Um, and is there, where does, is there a sense of ethical responsibility for reaching outside uh, the circle and or how can teachers sort of navigate the tensions that they may confront and wanting to do social justice work, but they're confronted with either reactionary politics or liberal indifference, I don't know. Um, yeah. <laughs> I want to be clear, I want to be clear, we had plenty of uh, not just liberal difference, but passive aggressive resistance from liberals in Seattle, particularly white liberals in from more affluent neighbor, neighborhoods and communities uh, who, who came back at us with all, my, all lives matter and all that kind of stuff. So I don't want to paint Seattle as some sort of, you know, liberal utopia um, and by, by any means. Um, yeah, you know, you raise a good question. I mean, part of me, there's, there's, there is an activist sort of organizer response to say that, um, you know, when we're organizing and we're raising consciousness around stuff, you know, some people think of, I'm not saying you do this, but I think some people think that the goal is to um, try and sway like the far right, whatever, to your position. When in reality, most of those folks won't be swayed from anything. 
right? They're not, they're not in a space, like even to put in Vygotsky in terms, their ZPD is nowhere near to what we're trying to get to. And I think the more important conversation, the more important audience is really the bulk of people in the middle who kind of are trying to figure out which way they lean or they have partial knowledge in either direction. And those are the folks that I think are who, who we're actually trying to move, not, not, the, not the most alienated on, on the margin um, sort of conservatives, right? Um, in part because I think that's where it's also just there's a calculus of energy and where you're going to get sort of the most bang for your buck, if you want to put it that way, speaking in neoliberal terms, I guess. Um, if you want to be more the most effective, it's going to be on moving a bunch of the folks in the middle than it is on moving folks on the fringes. So, and so, like, I'm less concerned about those folks, besides those folks are usually attacking me anyway, it's the ones way out in the far right. Um, um, it's, and, but, but I've also, you know, I've also seeded some of that ground, just to be honest, you know, as soon as, um, as soon as I sort of outed myself as a Marxist, although if you read my work, you would, you'd be, have to be ignorant to not understand that I was a Marxist. Um, but uh, that, you know, now I've put a thing out there that where people, if they want to discredit me, particularly in a sort of red baiting moment, they'll, they would just be able to use that to discredit me with some mainstream circles, right? And so there's, there's a whole sort of conversation around, around that. Um, but I've never been, you know, shy or quiet about who I am or my politics and what I was doing too and everything that I did. I just didn't always shout that I was a Marxist at least until I put out uh, that, that particular book. But in terms of teachers who are working in more um, limited spaces, right? Um, you know, it's really difficult. And, and I want to be clear. So despite my radicalism, you know, um, you know I, I feel very strongly, and this is really the Marxist in me too, is that, you know, we are all working within our given context. Like our, any context is, is constrained by certain things. And so I think the job of any educator who's trying to do good, you know, work around educational justice, for instance, the first thing I always tell, like right now I teach teachers too, the first thing I tell my future teachers is like, you need to learn your building and your community. You need to understand what the politics are, folks in that community, what the history is, you know, who the students are in front of you, and then also the same, the same issues for that building, right? You know, where, where's leadership at? Where are they, where, you know, where do they stand on various issues? Who are your colleagues? Who are your department? Like, our, our students who are going to be teachers need to go and study their context just like they would study anything else because that, that, that context is going to set up, um, potentially set up certain limit relate, limits to your relationships and, and politics. And you need to understand that so that you can understand, you know, how far can you push Right, where like where is that edge so that you can figure out what 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 a, what a good push is versus um, the kind of push that'll just immediately get you fired, right? And so I'm always I'm always recommending to folks in whatever context, even you know in liberal Seattle, um, you know to to figure that out um, because in different communities there's different spaces that you just get afforded to work in, and and also there's also part of that is also to say look for the opportunities too, right? Um, you know just because you might be in a conservative rural area, for instance, um, doesn't mean you can't you can't teach about this stuff. But you got you got to be really really smart about what you do and how you do it because there's things that folks are experiencing in those rural areas that they'll relate to. If you're going to talk, I mean, certainly around class and economic stuff and 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 you know the reproductions of inequalities and and this whole idea, you know, this basically meritocracy does not not really existing based on life opportunities. Like those are all things you can teach in all kinds of contexts. And then you can use that to start to push the questions potentially in other spaces around maybe race or gender or sexuality, right? Um, and I don't want to be stereotypical either because a lot of it is even school to school within these contexts. I was just, um, I had a guest speaker in one of my classes who does a lot of work on transgender students 
and and uh, the speaker was just talking about a school that was inside of their research where it was really terrible in terms of how the school responded and there's a vice principal being really abusive to the students and that kind of stuff. But really the next school over actually had a supportive administration and things were a lot better for transgender students in that space, right? So, and this was in a, in a conservative rural Southern area. And so um, I don't wanna be stereotypical about that. I just think there's that, that, that our contexts are really specific sometimes. And even if we might have general understandings of, of maybe the overall shade of politics in a particular area, that there are some, there are spaces to move here and there. And so um, I definitely encourage practitioners to be really strategic about that. And sometimes you just don't know. You can just step on a landmine, you don't know it, and, and that's it, you, you, you're done, you're out of your job, right? Um, that can be, that, that can always happen. Um, but, but, and then the other piece I, th I think, and this is one of the upsides of, for instance, when there is an ethnic studies state standard, for instance, or some other diversity related standard, um, you know, to always find your, like, make sure you have backing for what you do. There's research evidence to back up this stuff. You know, if you have a state standard that's there, like if you want to put this into work, you're like, look, I'm just doing what the research says is good for, for, for the student population. Or the state has already endorsed this kind of teaching. I'm just doing state standard, right? Like you need, there's, some, there's some, something to be said for having official backing for what you do. And then finally, I'll say, again, it's a context thing. Like, um, you know, if, you know, shoot, if, if in whatever context you're in, like, like getting, you know, you can't get the more radical version of multicultural education, but you can start pushing on the more sort of liberal, maybe global cultural stuff or whatever, like, like that's okay. If that's what you can get done and you can start to move the conversation and at least expose your kids to, 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 to a, a bigger, a, an understanding of a bigger world, like if that's the step you can take in that context, then that's the step you take, right? And be okay with that, right? Um, and be prepared for when there's op an opening for you to take that next step because you don't know when our big context is going to change, right? You know, like I said earlier, you know, we used, we didn't used to be able to talk about white supremacy openly in such a in such a flippant way. You know, now you can, and so there are spaces where where you couldn't teach about white supremacy before. You can teach about it now, right? And so when those openings happen, be there to to um, you know to do that. And then finally, the other thing I'll say, I probably keep saying finally, but I keep remembering things. The other thing I always tell my, my future teachers and current teachers is like, find your people because no matter where you are, you're much stronger with a network, both in terms of your, your mental health, right? But also your pedagogic and curriculum and teacherly health too. Um, you know, everywhere there are, there's, there's networks all over the place of like progressive teachers and, you know, go, go find them, you know, use rethinking schools, for instance, as a way to find folks who might be in your area, whatever, like, like, Try and like find those people because if you can find your people, even if you're the, you're the one teacher at your school, you know, find the other one teacher at the next school over and like hang out and vent to each other and also share curriculum, right? Like it's critically important for us to to be able to attend to that um, if, if we're going to be successful in this work. So, I want to actually. I think that was really great because that was one of our questions from before because we do you know what do we do for future teachers you know and what what is the message you can give to them as you know a hopeful message when they're going out into the world where they know it's you know some of the odds are stacked against them and they want to just do creative beautiful work but then it's they're dealing with the realities but before we do that i do want to ask a follow-up question with this pedagogy of insurgency because when you're talking about you know when you said finding the openings and how we've talked about with, um, say, the um, liberal discourse with multiculturalism and then also neoliberalism. 
how can those who are striving to practice or embody a pedagogy of insurgency in, you know, in, in their schools and their lives, how can they also then still, when they find those openings, and so maybe go with like the official backing, like, hey, we have these ethnic studies state standards, but also how can their actions and their practice still resist neoliberalism's tendency to co-opt that language? Yeah, you know, part of it, I think, is, I mean, we can always resist everything anytime. Like, there's choices we make that can do that. Part of it is, I'd also think that neoliberalism is going to co-opt whatever it's going to co-opt, no matter what we do, right? And so I think there is that sort of thing that, that it does. Um, but, but I think the, one, the way we resist it, one way we resist it, for instance, is that we, we create structures that can help stand up, stand up to it. And so, you know, um, you know, I think one thing that's been critical here in Seattle has been a left wing, the formation of a left wing caucus in our teachers union, right? Because what that has allowed them to do is they've created a structure now. And so when that opportunity arises, they, they, can, they can take that moment and use that as a way to, to further teacher consciousness and, and change policy in the district, right? And so to me, when you, when you have a, a mechanism to do that kind of work, um, then that actually is a good, that helps build resistance to some of the neoliberal cooptation um, because that's just because you have a power base and you get to use that to sort of control the direction to the degree that we, you can control it, right? Um, but that, so that, that has been, for us, that's been critical here in other cities for sure, um, because, you know, that's, it was, it was that power base that helped move the whole city towards doing the, the Black Lives Matter School Day. Um, going back to 2012, um, you know, the formation of the Left Caucus helped support the work around uh, opting out and boycotting uh, some high-stakes standardized tests in the state. Um, when it came to negotiating contracts, you know, the last round of negotiations, they were trying to negotiate for things like more recess time, for less testing, for racial equity teams at schools, right? Like, like there's, it, it gives you a base to sort of operate from that is, um, that can help, that, that can help you just resist that, that whole neoliberal push to the degree that you can. Um, you know, it's not that I have, I have any romantic notions that like this left caucus is going to sort of transform the entire district, but in some ways it has transformed the district and certainly it's moved the common sense of the district in, in good directions when, 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 it, when we can, when, it had, when it's had the chance. And then similarly, this actually goes back to the network thing. I think, um, uh, you know, and really creating institutions too, you know, because like we have a, we have a Northwest Teaching for Social Justice Conference we run every year now and, and, and it used, when we were in person, it was between, we always flip-flop between like Portland and Seattle because um, those are two, our two big sort of bases. But that's an institution that we created years ago now. At this point, it's almost 12, 15 years old. Um, and we draw like 1,300, 1,400, 1,500 teachers every year. And so it becomes a thing. And, and again, it becomes an organizing space. Um, it becomes a, a sort of a structure, a structural power that allows us to communicate with people in the region around, around this stuff. But then more importantly to your question then, um, I think one of the other ways that we sort of um, uh, push back on the neoliberal cooptation and reframing of this stuff is actually to keep ourselves sharp, right? It's a space where we come into conversation with each other and, and can, um, uh, you know, learn new stuff, analyze things differently, and, and just really, and really like push each other to, to have conversations and, and, and not, you know, like to, not to fall prey to a lot of things a lot of the more uh, mainstream things that we might, we might fall prey to. And it's also a space to move sort of mainstream, sort of, you know, just good old fashioned liberal educators who have a notion of like racial justice, racial equality or educational justice in their heads 
Um, and then they go there and they're like, okay, this is what it means. And they can, they can move through. So, so again, it's a, it ends up being a little bit of a, our own power structure to help continue the conversation in the way that we want it to go um, and not have it just be co-opted by sort of the neoliberal like process. So, so when we come to our, we come to our final question and um, you, I think that you've already given us some, some really great um, ways of thinking about this question, particularly in building networks, like as you're just speaking to these networks that you belong to and work with. Um, but we'd like to hear what your advice to future educators would be. You know, they wanna work for economic and racial justice in their schools and communities, um, but it's, it's, it's often easy to be overwhelmed you know, by the, the scale of the problems that we're facing. Um, and here we have in mind big picture issues related to power and inequality and racism and climate change, yeah. which I think in many ways over the next few decades is going to impose itself um, much more forcefully and it will circulate in all of the things that, that we're doing um, in, in our political and educative work. Um, so how, how do we keep it real without losing a sense of purpose and possibility? And also, where do you draw uh, inspiration and strength to continue doing the work that you do? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I've said a bunch of things already, right? Finding the networks, um, um, you know, understanding your school context, like those are the two big ones that I've already talked about. But in terms of other stuff, um, you know, what I want, what I want teachers to understand is that like, you know, you are like, I think we forget this, right? Teachers are powerful, right? Um, and they're not, and I don't mean that in a sort of like, you know, you see it right now in the political discussion around teachers, right? Like folks on the right think that teachers are all powerful, right? Like all we do is indoctrinate children all day and it's so easy to do, right? We, meanwhile, the rest are like, oh, I wish I could just get them to do their damn homework, let alone like learn about critical race theory, right? Um, and so, but, but there's, but, but there is a way that teachers are powerful in the sense that you are in relation to kids every day for nine months of the year, 10 months of the year, right? Or all year, if you're in Hawaii, I think, I think you all are year round, aren't you? But, um, um, like you are in relation with students and which means you're also in relation to their communities. And so in that way, you're, you're powerful in the sense that, in the sense that, your relationship shapes how they how they understand and experience schools on a day-to-day -day basis, right? And so the community you create in your classroom, um, you know, the, the, the kinds of ways you can help them think and understand and sort of decode the world they're experiencing, like all those things are, are crucial. You may not, the thing is though, you may not see it right away. I think it's important for teachers to understand, right? That, that you know, the seed that you plant with a kid or the relationship you have with a kid now, you know, you're not going to know what that's going to what that's going to turn into, what tree that's going to grow into, you know, over the next 20 or 30 years, which is really, really can be really, really unsatisfying for a teacher, right? Um, that's why I always get so excited. Like we get the email 10 years later from a student, they're like, "Hey, just because of your class, you know, your Asian American Studies class that took me to Berkeley High, I decided to major in this, this, and this, and I'm doing great, and here's what's happening, right?" Um, but so understand that you are like you are just so important for that. And the other sort of advice I want to give folks always is to say, you know, you got to really just, I mean, especially now when I think about what it's been like during the pandemic and everything that's been going on in the world, like just understand that being a teacher means in a way, you know, really like loving your students and their communities, 
right? And, and really engaging with them, right? What does that mean? I mean a full kind of love, like, like you know, these are folks who, these are parents who are sending their kids to you. These are young people who, and kids who are coming to you in their full selves, right? Like, like <clears throat> there's a beauty in that. And there's something to love about that relationship and what you're seeing, what you're experiencing and what you're, what you are giving to them and what you're getting, like, like, and what you're getting from them. Like, this is like, there's, there's something wonderful about that. And I think it's, we, we, we can lose track of all that in the in face of the policies and the big structural issues and everything. Um, you know, because the stuff that you do teach them and how you engage students, that will matter to them. And it, and it does matter to them. Um, you know, and for better and worse, because that means the mistakes that we make are also amplified because they sit with them as well. Um, and, and, but, but like, so in that, de that degree, you're powerful and you, you have the chance to, to shape their engagement and experience with, with schools and education and learning. Um, you know, and so, you know, you're, you're doing something amazing. And so I think it's really important for teachers just to sort of sit with that and be with that and understand what that calling is in, in, in that way. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, I think that's a really good note to end on. And we want to thank you for being with us today. We really enjoyed this conversation and definitely learned a lot. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Thank you.